The reason so many people misunderstand so many issues is not that these issues are so complex, but that people do not want a factual or analytical explanation that leaves them emotionally unsatisfied. They want villains to hate and heroes to cheer, and they don't want explanations that do not give them that. With the James Harrigan discussion, today he has a PhD in political science. We're going to talk about all things philosophy and political science. Check out the Words and Numbers podcast, along with Cooperation and Coercion, his excellent book that he wrote with Anthony Davies. Mr. Harrigan, do you have a book, uh, a, a new one coming out? Uh, nope, nothing on the immediate horizon. Got it. All right. I will have those two in the description below. Mr. Harrigan, what is the purpose of philosophy and how can uh, philosophy benefit people in their everyday lives? Well, you know, it, that's an odd question to start with. Most people take that sort of thing uh, as, as, as given and they just move on from a question they never ask. But I mean, the best answer I've ever heard to that question is that philosophy tries to replace opinions on the nature of things with knowledge on the nature of things. And mm. I think it's, I think it's just that simple, right? That's the Leo Strauss version of the answer to that question. And I think for my money, the best one, um, you know, you, it, given what you just said in the opening, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's just something I want to throw on the table before we talk too much, because it will be definitive of a lot of things I say. Um, it's my considered opinion. Maybe it's a fact, but maybe it's not. So we'll have to work on that a little bit. But it's my considered opinion that almost everything is actually pretty simple. Uh, that doesn't mean it's easy. Almost nothing is easy. But it's, there, most things are perfectly clear, perfectly simple. And, and that's typically where I begin my considerations of thorny issues, right? I, I ask, what's the common sense answer here? Because the common sense answer is 99% of the time the exact right answer. So you have to learn to trust your your instincts a little more than maybe we're trained to. But Yeah, that is something I've always said. I said, you know, if people would just define their terms and be willing to admit when they were wrong, I swear it would solve like 90% of things. We'd be, we'd be able to get on the same page. Uh, is that uh, too naive or uh, do, you, do you have some criteria of how uh, we can, you know, expose ourselves to uh, such simplicity? Yeah. And I, I don't know the right answer to that question, right? Because it seems as a, a matter of common sense that people should do this by default. And of course they don't. Um, people are, are lining up in team red and team blue and, and anything my guy says is right and anything your guy says is obnoxious. And what do we end up with? We end up with guys saying the exact same thing sequentially over four-year terms. Um, I can't tell the difference between red and blue when they finally get what they want. And I guess that tells you something, right? Um, whether we can make this, uh, this obvious, easy, common sense approach to life, whether we can make that workable, plausible. I don't know, because um, people just seem to be resistant to, to this sort of thinking. Is there maybe sort of a, um, a a replacement that you can give them? So if they find so much meaning in Bernie, they find so much meaning in Trump, finally a guy saying what's on his mind without walking on eggshells, this guy really stands for me. Do you think instead of, you know, telling them to... Uh, you know, uh, hold him to the same standards they'd hold Hillary to. If you just gave them something else to believe in, that maybe they would believe in that and they wouldn't have to rely on the Trumps and Clintons of the world to find purpose and meaning in their lives? Yeah, I, I really don't know 
what a, a decent answer to that question looks like. Um, that I don't know probably means that there is not an answer down that road, right? Because somebody would have thought of it by now and given it a shot. And, and yet here we all sit. Uh, now, I think that this, this met, the sports metaphor, right? Blue jerseys and red jerseys. I think sooner or later, this is going to fall apart. Now, how, how much later? I don't know. And how bad do things have to get before that happens? And, and I don't know the answer to that either. So I think we're looking at dire circumstances before this goes by the wayside. And probably even then, it, it doesn't go past it doesn't go to the wayside because people, as you know, they, they just line up and they say, well, if something bad is happening. It's their fault. And it just, it just gets built up over time, more of the same. So, Hey, who knows? I think the best thing any reasonable person can do is find a way to be comfortable in your own environment and make sure that nothing these lunatics do can cause you real harm. Excellent points. Do you see uh, any value in studying metaphysics? Yeah, of course. Uh, there's there's value in studying anything philosophical, right? And that's philosophical bedrock that you're talking about with metaphysics, and it's 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 become unfashionable. Um, maybe it's coming back into folk, but it's become unfashionable since I was a college student, but back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, to to dismiss things like an eternal objective standard of good and bad, to just d- dismiss that out of hand. Oh, okay, but notice what you've done. If that's if that's what you choose to do, notice what you've done. Explain to me how chattel slavery is wrong, because you need an eternal standard of good and bad to do that, right? Or, or correct and incorrect, however you care to to phrase that. Explain to me why rape is wrong. Explain to me why murder is wrong. And and here you see the problem, right? Um, the nihilist problem. Without this objective standard, there is no way to determine that anything is better than anything else. It's all just personal preference. And personal preference walks you down a very dangerous, disgusting road. You don't want that at all. You just don't. So, you know, when you ask, should we study this? Yeah, of course we should study this. And it, it, It's almost as if we should start studying it in kindergarten and just beat it into heads over time. But, of course, we're not going to be doing that anytime soon. But nonetheless, I I think some variant on the answer I just gave you is what we're going to have to start thinking a lot more seriously. Yeah, Samantha B. was actually having sort of a laugh at a philosophical discussion with her crowd about these idiots. They're uh, look at how dumb these people are. And, you know, it's a guy going, you know, why is murder wrong? That's really something we should embrace. And then the video stops and she face palms and goes, look at all this dumb nonsense. We talk about real things like what President Clinton uh, said in, uh, you know, some obscure, trivial, nonsensical thing that's irrelevant to one day later. So if you were talking to the Samantha Bees of the world that think, oh, why is murder wrong? But forget this James Harrigan guy. What would you say to them to explain uh, why they should be asking such fundamental questions and the importance behind them. Yeah, I, I would. I would first probably call her an idiot. <laughs> I, I'm just throwing that out there. That, given my nature, that's probably the first thing I'm going to do. But a, as we dig a little deeper uh, into that topsoil, um, the question of right and wrong, good and bad, bad, better, best, right, these sorts of determinations. All, every last one of them, require an external objective truth. 
that you apart from you, right, your subjective truth, when these morons say, well, I'm going to speak my truth, just stop. For God's sake, just stop. It's the truth, not your truth. That's the objective standard that we're looking to, to, to meet. Now, the, the problem here is twofold. First, it's incredibly difficult to meet that standard. And, and second, here's where it gets really tricky. We never know if we actually have. Right. And, and when I say that philosophy is the, the endeavor to replace opinion about the nature of things with fact about the nature of things, we never know if we've been successful. Now, in broad strokes, I can tell you a few things that I can tell you that, that human slavery is going to be out. Right. You can't do it. Why? Because I have this objective, true, objectively true statement. All men are created equal. And I think that's bedrock. Right. Once you start there, there's a number of things that are going to be incompatible with your worldview. And anything that robs rights from the individual, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, property, speech, and then you go down right through the, the, the Bill of Rights, these sorts of things right, all make perfect sense because they're consonant with this assertion that all men are created equal. Murder is not consonant with that. You can't do that. Uh, rape, not consonant with that. Can't do that. Slavery, not consonant with that. Can't do that. Now, are these facts or are they opinions? And, and that's where it gets real tricky, right? Now, I'm going to present these as moral facts. I have no trouble doing that. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Other people will say that they can't do that. And if they say that, they are definitionally nihilists. They're, what they're saying is, my preferences are better than your preferences. And then I say, well, why might that be? And the answer you're going to get back is always going to be a variation on because. It leaves you a little flat, right? You're waiting for something bigger to come. But there is nothing bigger to come. It's a small-minded universe over on that side of the street. So these are the sorts of things I would say if pushed on this sort of thing. I wouldn't expect to have any impact whatsoever. People who have decided that this is correct, they stand in, in the line they stand in and you can't get them out, right? So when I have these public debates with these sorts of people, I'm never debating the person to change the person's mind. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the audience, right? Exactly, yeah. But, but I always think it's good to uh, bring horses to water, even though only a microscopic amount of them will drink. Uh, simply because I'm glad that people uh, did it with me when uh, I was. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've gone from that's, knowing that's... that I was positive about being a progressive, and now I'm like, I'm, I'm very humble, but I still think I'm in the correct uh, position. But it, it, the only reason I was willing to ever question it is because I was like, oh, I hear there's these idiots, Glenn Beck and Ron Paul, and all they <laughs> just say is nonsense. I go, I, I got to watch this just for fun, yeah. j just to see how dumb they are. And my mm -hmm. mind was just blown. So I've been so humbled by that, that, you know, I still try to uh, give uh, g give people a little something. Keith, if you had made it to whatever age you happen to be right, right this second without calling into question some of your core beliefs and, in fact, changing your mind on a couple of them, I suspect that would only mean that you're not you're not too active a thinker. Right. Mm -hmm. And because I, I remember when I believed things radically different from the things I believe now. And then over the years, you know, this endeavor of the giving of reasons, right, which is what philosophers do on both sides of any issue and, and then aligning myself with the side that was most sensible 
that basic thing has caused me to, to shift on any number of issues. And, you know, at my age, I, I think it, it's only for the best that I can remember having had that happen. And then again, at my age, it happens less frequent, less frequently now. Right. And that's, I think, going to be the, the, the standard that almost anybody's going to realize if they're, if they're open to it, that you'll have some kind of wholesale change of heart early on. And then it's going to be somewhat incremental as you get older. What are uh, some important lessons we could learn from studying epistemology and how we can determine truth from falsehood? Well, that's a real pain in the ass of a question, Keith. I'm going to say that um, I, we should have a contest for how many beverages I'm going to be drinking today. Because <laughs> I just put the, I just finished the coffee. Now I've moved on to something else. <laughs> J- but when James that, when that a- runs out, I can have this too. James lives in Arizona and his AC broke, so he needs to stay hydrated. For, for those correct. of you, <laughs> for those of you who didn't see the bat signal in the sky the <laughs> other day, alerting us to the emergency. <laughs> yeah, because it's only going to be 111 degrees today without my air conditioner. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, l- let's hurry it up about, so you can get the loud portable back on. <laughs> that's right. Get, get me the hell out of here, man! Get me out of here. At this at this moment, I'm not sure why I moved away from Iraq. Right, <laughs> it just seems that <laughs> every upside is gone from from that. But anyway, I digress. Why epistemology is your question? Why do we study the thing that tells us um, how we might know what we know? And that's an interesting sort of thing, isn't it? Um, and, and actually, if you ask yourself the serious question, how is it that you you think you know what you know? You're not going to, you're going to get a lot of blank faces there, a lot of dead stares, mm-hmm. because that's, that's a step beyond maybe two or three steps beyond what anybody who is a non-philosopher wants to do with this time. It, it's even beyond what I want to do with my time, right? If you gave me a choice, watch the Red Sox game or talk about epistemology, I'm going Red Sox every time. <laughs> it, it's not even close, right? And yet that's an important question. How do we know what we know? And this is one of those things that there's not going to be a particularly excellent answer, but there's not going to be an answer to this that people will look at and say, Oh yeah, that's right. There's going to be a lot of different answers to this. And, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on it, but the question, how do I know what I know? Uh, Descartes, right? I think therefore I am. That's an epistemological statement. Is it a good one? Well, I don't know. What does he mean by think? Do he and I think? Is it the same word for both of us, right? And and these little thorny issues start to emerge from any sort of statement that you can make about anything, right? Keith is sitting in Phoenix. I'm sitting in Tucson. We're sharing a conversation. Do we each perceive that conversation the same way? I don't know. I think maybe, but I don't know. And why do I think maybe? Because I have conversations with people all day, every day, and I occasionally look at people and say, are we talking about the same thing here? <laughs> and and they almost always start nodding their heads. So, all right, the surface level, it seems like it's pretty good. But are your perceptions of the world the same as mine? Ah, now I don't know. And when I was young, when I was like six or seven, that's when that question started driving home in my brain. So I was probably destined to some kind of philosophical life regardless, right? But I would always ask, do my parents and I see things? Are we looking at the same thing when we talk about it? And my, my natural instinct at that time led me to believe that we probably are. We're probably in agreement on, on what we're looking at. 
but but I'll never be able to know because how would I know? I'd ask them questions. How do I know that the language they're using, not to drift too far into postmodernism here, how do I know that we share a language? Does their use of English look like my use of English, right? And the answer to that is eh, not always. So it gets real interesting as you go. Now, I think there's going to be a few things that you're just going to have to take on faith. And notice I use that word very specific, explicitly. I know what faith means. Um, but you're going you're gonna to have to line up behind a faith statement or two. And that first faith statement is, is the metaphysical statement. There is an, a, a, an objective standard of good and evil. Could I prove that? No. Could I argue that and win? Yeah. But in the end, it's not provable. You're just going to have to take that as, as a given. And if that's not carved in stone, correct, capital C, then anything that follows it will not be carved in stone either. Uh, so I've got the, the truth statement, non-subjective uh, non and objective standard of right and wrong. And now I got to answer how we know what we think we know. Well, that's going to be real hard. Given that first statement, it's going to be really, really hard. And I think in a lot of ways, we have to take as an article of faith here in step two, that what we're looking at is probably something that we all agree on, regardless of the terminology we use for it. And we're going to have to build us something to, to take our individual subjective places. Can we do that? Well, I, I don't know. It's it very, very shifting as you as you walk down these, these sand dunes, right? I take great faith in knowing that it's my opinion that every mother of a child that's probably anywhere from three to 10 years old understands objective truth far better than most philosophy professors. And how do I know this? As they walk up and down the aisle at the supermarket and these children lose their minds over sugar, sugary cereals, the mother says things like, Cut it out right now, or I'm gonna give you sugary cereals, and and isn't that a truth statement? Cut it. You're out of line here, Junior. Back in the back in the bus. Um, and the way people raise their children all the time requires them to have moral, morally true statements, and they don't they don't shrink from those not even for a second. And if you want to think about how children probably know more than college professors. Go watch them play a game of kickball on any parking lot in the United States. Yeah. Just go watch. They have a very keen understanding of what's fair and what's not fair. And they say it all the time. Whenever you hear a child say, that's not fair, that's a metaphysical uh, argument that he's offering. And he hasn't been taught out of it yet. right? So I think our natural instincts, pretty damn good on this sort of thing. We should probably follow them more often than not. I, I think that... My, my instincts are right 99.9% .9 of the time. Yours too, right? All of ours. This isn't an effort to explain why my instincts are so wonderful. They're not. But they're often, more often than not, correct by, by a wide margin. So, you know, learning to accept that inner voice that you have, that we all have, um, that's the tricky bit, right? Because what, why do we not do that? People say it all the time. I don't want to impose my morality on you, but... And honestly, I don't want to impose my morality on people unless they're doing something that's egregious. And then I want nothing but to Im impose my, my beliefs on them. Right. And, and this is where we sit as uh, as human beings, as American human beings, this sort of thing. 
Is there a more clear answer to this? Probably not. But, but understanding that children appeal to metaphysics immediately upon a problem emerging is, I think, um, telling. And if we all remembered that as we got to our, our college classes, which teach quite clearly that nothing is better than anything else, well, what do you think is going to emerge from that? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? But remember back when you were six and how obvious everything was. I think that's the tricky bit, right? Getting back to that period. I have a definition here of thought experiments as an imagined sequence of events that is used to illustrate or investigate the consequences of a given action or condition, especially in philosophy and theoretical physics. What do you think are the what do you think is the value of engaging in thought experiments? Well, I mean, sooner or later, you're going to ask a question about a trolley, and I'm I'm going to hate you for it. Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll let that go for right now. Uh, a thought experiment is an interesting thing. Right? Um, it requires you to sit back, put your feet up, and actually think through things that you think you know, but that you probably don't know at all. Um, you you want me to give you one right now? Please, please, yeah. All right, so. Everybody's got a you know six or so of these tucked away in his brain, but I like this one because it was uh, told by a professor who actually changed my life. A guy named Rich Hiskus at the University of Connecticut when I was there as an undergraduate. If it weren't for him, I doubt I would have found my way to, to the things that I now do. But he would walk into class at some point, and I took probably ten classes with him over the years, and. Uh, he shamelessly did the exact same story in every single class, um, which is which is how I learned how to just retool everything I had already done for the next class. But nonetheless, uh, he said, imagine if you will, it's a Sunday afternoon and you, you walk out and you figure I'm just going to go for a walk in the woods. And in stores, Connecticut, the forest is thick, right? There are more cows than people up there. And uh, so there's there's green on every side of you. Um, it's a color that we forget here in here in Arizona. But imagine you're on a walk and you come upon a field. You never saw it before, but you walk in and and down the end of the field there's a stage and a band is playing, and there's a dude on the side with a big giant um, uh, grill and he's cooking burgers, and there's another guy passing out beers. And as you walk up into the group. They say, welcome, Here, grab a beer, grab a burger and listen to the show. And you do. And then next Sunday comes and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder if those crazy lunatics are back in that field. You go and yes, they are. And the same exact thing happens. And you go back every week and for seven weeks, the exact same thing happens. But as you're leaving on week seven, the guy at the grill says, all right, so you, you've been having a nice time, I take it. And you say, yes, this is wonderful. He says, okay, next week, you bring the burgers and the beer. Are you obligated to bring the burgers and the beer? And notice that this is a state of nature question reformulated. This is a state of nature question that asks if you're actually obligated by something that you didn't sign on for explicitly at the beginning. So when Locke and Hobbes and Montesquieu and the Persian letters and Rawls, when these people get to their state of nature theory, they just assume that you're going to agree or not agree at, at a time that that at a time prior to uh, codification of any sort of legal system that gives you a, a society of any kind. 
And we could talk about whether that's even a reasonable thing. I think it's not, right? Society predates all of this, and we'll leave that just kind of floating out there for next time. But are you obligated to bring the beer and the burgers? And there's only a couple of ways to look at this, right? Is Well, I have enjoyed beer and burgers until this moment. So, you know, yes, I must be on the hook for doing this next time. Or, well, no, that seems to be uh, something that got sprung on me and I was never consulted prior to this. And I think each of those answers is interesting. They're, they're each right in their own way. So which one is more right? And that becomes the philosopher's question, figuring out better and best. Now, I'm not sure what the right answer is here. Given my politics and where I lean, I'm in, inclined to give the what I call charitably the no fucking way argument, right? I'm in no fucking way am I on the hook for any of these things. But part of me realizes that by saying that I'm being obnoxious and that there is some understanding that I, I should be pulling my weight if I have agreed to come and play with these people. And so if, if even I can find criticism to my own point of view, and probably everybody else can too, which is what makes this an interesting thought experiment, right? If it's a good thought experiment, it gets you to a, a point where you can answer a, a very difficult question pretty simply, and then understand how far off the rails you're going to be with that answer down the road. Yeah. Nothing, nothing is perfect, right? Nothing. Yeah. There uh, was a uh, philosopher at Harvard, Robert Nozick, and he writes about uh, the experience machine. He says, suppose there were an experience machine that would give you any experience you desired. Super duper neuropsychological psychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel you were writing a great novel or making a friend or reading an interesting book all the time. You would be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming your life experiences? What do you think about that ex that thought experiment? And would you plug in? Why or why not? Well, let's leave to the side the obvious question as to whether we're already there, right? We all might be plugged in right now. Um, and, and if that's the case, then everything I say is about to become quite silly, but I'm going to take as, as given that we're not in that condition already. And I have to say, I've become more inclined to think that there's something to that position over time. I thought that was idiotic when I was in my 20s, but eh, 30 years later, I'm not so sure it's that dumb. Um, nonetheless, I would say, no, uh, I would not plug in. Why? Primarily, yeah, and, that, and that's the, the, the tricky bit, right? Life is interesting the way you get it. It unfolds the way it unfolds, and you can almost guide that path a little tiny bit, but not completely, right? You, you, you can re redefine where the river flows, but only from a, a few degrees on either side, right? And that's how life unfolds. And uh, you meet people along the way who are doing the same thing and are trying to make the best of whatever situations they've got, some bad, some not. And it seems to me that the real bonus that comes, the benefit of having this life, to the extent that there is a benefit, comes in interacting with other people who make your road more interesting. Right? It, it's hard to explain beyond that, right? We all know, if you look back on your life, there are you know, a number of people who left a dent 
in that thing that is you. And you're going to leave a bunch of dents, too, on other people. And that, to me, seems to be the, uh, the greatest thing of human life, right? the difference that we make in each other's lives. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not always a good difference, but, but that it, seems to be the interesting thing. And if you're in the experience machine, well, then you can always live your most interesting life that you think is going to be real, but you won't be having a real world effect on the minds of other people because all you are is some, you know, body in a vat or however you would describe it. So is uh, is a big part of life how we live on in the minds of others, and that's why people who might want to plug in for 10 minutes would never plug in for life? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I really think that that's right. Now, can I prove that? No. Um, <laughs> well, I, I can't, right? We're going to be yeah. back to that question at every angle today, given where we started. Um, I can make a case for the plausibility of that, I can engage in the giving of reasons with you, pro and con, and then we can decide what's more likely to be correct. And I think that's all easy enough. Um, but finding out what's correct and giving an accounting for the objective standards that we use, probably not so easy. And I see you opening yet another book, so there's going to be another one, I guess, right? What do you uh, got well, here? Well, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to, 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 to make it smooth here. Um, Yes. So uh, Michael Sandel wrote a book called uh, What Money Can't Buy. He says, putting a price on the good things in life can corrupt them. That's because markets don't only allocate goods. They also express and promote certain attitudes toward the goods being exchanged. The example he uses is kidneys. It is wrong for people to uh, buy and sell kidneys, just as it is wrong for people to buy and sell children. It's not like a glass or inanimate objects. These are us as a society saying we value organs and people's ability to live based on m things that uh, involve monetary exchanges for things like organs, something so special. So do you think this sort of thought experiment uh, allows us to uh, say what should and should not be for sale? Well, given all the things that he presupposes here, I, I would I would conclude that any conversation we would have derived from that opening thought would be quite pointless, right? Because he takes as given a certain answer. Kidneys are somehow special and should not be bought and sold. Okay, let's live here in the real world for just a minute. And let's think that Michael Sandel needs a kidney or he's going to die. He's probably going to have a change of heart on the matter real fast, but let's leave that to the side. What would make it legitimate for him to get a kidney? Well, under the present regime, we're going to have complicated answers. And, you know, that be, it, be that as it may, he might get a kidney and he might be okay, but we're stuck with a finite number of kidneys out there in the kidney market. And don't kid yourself, there's a kidney market. No. Um, and that, so then ask, would there be more of them? Would there be more kidneys available if we let people sell them? And yeah, of course there'd be more. How, how on earth would you think there wouldn't be more? Because you've just given people a financial incentive to divest themselves of one of their two kidneys, which probably not going to cost them much in the long term. If, if it was going to cost a lot in the long term, we wouldn't have people donating kidneys already. 
All right, so we're looking to prime the pump and to get more kidneys out on the market. And the best way, the most surefire way to get that to happen is to let people profit from the from the from the story. And a lot of people could really use, say, thirty thousand dollars instead mm -hmm. of one of their two kidneys. And then there are a lot of people out there who would cheerfully pay thirty thousand dollars to get a kidney. All right, is that a perfect arrangement? No, it doesn't. We don't find people floating around on clouds with, you know, they're, they're liars in this perfect version of heaven on earth. Uh, no, it's not perfect. Is it much better than what we've now got? Yeah, it's way better. And if you don't consider these two things better and best instead of perfect and imperfect, right? You're asking the wrong questions. That's because so important. Yeah. The, 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 the need of the kidney is so high, so acutely high for a group of people that they're not going to care where it comes from. Right. And, and look, we've got this other option that we don't talk about, but it's pretty clear that in China, there are kidneys. Yeah. They take them from prisoners along with all kinds of other things. And, you know, you look at all the things that people can have implanted. I believe kidney is the only one that doesn't do a world of harm on the donor. Hmm. I wouldn't want to be a Chinese prisoner when they got, when they were, were out looking for kidneys exactly. or, hearts, or hearts. Yeah. And I, I was looking and the CDC says there's something like 30 to 50,000 people in America a year die because they don't have access to a kidney. I've seen both numbers, 30 to 50. But I mean, e even if it's 30, oh my heavens, at least give them the option I'm not saying that's mandatory. Right. I'm not saying, oh, right. you know, everyone who doesn't want to give a kidney is a kidney hoarder and should be imprisoned. It's just giving them an option. It's it's so similar to the yeah. idea of, you know, child labor. That, of course, is a terrible thing that I hate so much. But it turns out outlawing child labor turns the kids into prostitutes or they starve to death. So yeah. that that better versus best and... Well, what was that you said again? Better versus best, perfect and imperfect? Perfect and imperfect, right? Everybody wants perfection. And, you know, look, philosophers might talk about that quite a bit. Political philosopher like me, I'm, I'm looking for the 99.44% right answer, right? Get me, most, get me mostly right, and we can talk about that tiny bit that lives on the outer fringe, right? I get it. I know that there's going to be problems with any damn thing I can mention, Um but I give things that there are fewer problems with, right? Don't let, you can't let everything be the enemy of the good right? rather than the best. You, you just can't let that happen because you're not going to do the best. You're going to do really well if you get anywhere near it, right? And that's, that should be your standard. How close to best can you get? Understanding that we're never getting all the way there. And I think if you can get me 99% of the way home, Shut up about the last 1%. I mean, good God, just shut up about it. And let's have arguments over those things when our lives are 99% lovely and perfect. Because that'd let, be good enough. Let's say I uh, go to a bar and I plan on Ubering home after I drink, but I get so drunk that I lose all inhibitions. I drive home and I unfortunately am so drunk I crash into someone else and I kill them. This was a total accident. I never meant to do this. Do you think I should be uh, punished or held yeah, responsible? You, you, should, you should absolutely be punished or held responsible. And, and here's the reason. You take leave of your senses at some point during the evening. Um, and you say, 
I was going to do something else, I guess, but I'll just drive home. What could possibly go wrong? And then it goes wrong. And I, I would contend that your problem began the minute you decided to take the first drink because you made a choice at that moment, clear of mind, you made a choice to start drinking. And everybody knows there are certain things that come with that choice later down the road. And anything that you do, you are going to be culpable for it because of your first choice to go from sober to not sober. Not because of the 15th choice at the end going from drunk to driving. Your, your sin was way up at the front. And, and I'm fine with, with laying it out that way. Um, will the philosophers take issue with it? Yeah, probably. But I guess they need something to talk about. Um, you know, look, I mean, I, I don't mean to be terribly insulting to them, but you know, most of them want to talk about nonsense. And here you're bringing up a question about life and death, which is, I think, exactly what we should be thinking about. And when is a person on the hook for a death that their actions caused? Well, they're on the hook for it the moment they realize that their next decision could result in very bad things. And if, if you were walking into the bar thinking, I'm going to call an Uber, you already knew that your actions might cause very bad things to happen. You already knew, or you wouldn't be thinking Uber. And then later, when you take leave of your senses and you do the thing you swore you wouldn't do, now you're, now you're blameworthy. Sorry. Sure. Uh, let's say a woman is at a party and gets extremely, extremely drunk, and ends, uh, and then a guy who's sober comes in and easily convinces her to sleep with him. Um, was uh, he uh, immoral in taking advantage of her in this uh, vulnerable position? Even though he wasn't physically coercing her, she, much like the drunk driver, had gotten themselves in this position. And uh, should uh, they be uh, still held responsible? Or uh, is this guy more or less a rapist? Oh, I don't think he's more or less a rapist. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> think he's just a rapist. Um, but you bring up the interesting thing, right? You want to apply my previous example to both people in this example. And I think you probably can, right? I think both of them are blameworthy in some respect, right? And it's, it's been my longstanding belief that people drink to give themselves permission to misbehave. So I don't drink. Because I, I don't want that to be my life. I used to, and it, you know, no big deal. But at some point in your life, you have to put down silly things and be more serious. And silly things included alcohol for me. Fair enough. But in the in the, in this example, it appears to me that both are, are culpable, right? And and you have to ask a very basic question if that's true. You have to ask which of the two is more culpable. And for my money, it's the man every time here. If you're dealing with someone who is really intoxicated for anything, I don't think you, you can really, I don't think you can really do anything. There. You've, you've got you've to be looking at what's reasonable. And people who are intoxicated, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say about them because we've all seen it, right? They're falling mm -hmm. down drunk everywhere you look, and it's, it's repulsive, and people ought not do that. But they do, and the obvious question is, if they do that, should they be held accountable for anything? And I just answered yes in the previous question. And what do I want to do here but backpedal from it? 
right? Because now it's two people, not one person. And they're both wrong to some degree in my mind here. But the man who takes advantage is much, much, much more wrong. Right? And I don't know how you contend anything other than that. This is a set of circumstances that no reasonable person would ever delve into. Right? You don't take advantage of, of the drunk to satisfy your own craven lusts. Right? That's just, that. not only is that wrong, it's disgusting. And I think most people most people are keenly aware of that and don't need a constant reminder. And yet there is a sizable enough minority out there who would take advantage every time. And we all know these people, right? We've seen them in action. That I don't know what to say about it, except that their behaviors from where I sit are bordering on, on criminal, if not well over a line into criminal, depending on how bad things get from the moment I, I experience it. Um, sure. So, and I, and I think we should be blaming both of those people for what they have done but my god the man deserves so much more of the blame right so much more and and look it, i'm being realistic here i'm a father of two very nice girls i have very lovely daughters and what do i tell them well i tell them don't go to certain places at certain hours uh, nothing good happens after midnight right? this is my italian grandmother talking <laughs> but but damn if she wasn't right and, and we can talk all you want about how you should be able to go anywhere you want whenever you feel like it. I agree. Yes. Um, but, here, but here in the real world, where I know what happens in these places, you do well to listen. Does that mean that you're going to forfeit some of your rights? Uh, forfeit's probably not the right answer. But yeah, there's going to be a, a curtailment on, on some things. And I'm telling my daughters that this is reasonable. And you should maybe think that way. Meanwhile, I'm telling society I would not organize things in this way, right? So, you know, where that leads us, I'm not exactly sure. But there it is. There we are. Let's uh, get into uh, the double stabbing scenario. Let's say uh, you and I are hanging out and I have a knife and I accidentally slip fall and I stab you. And unfortunately, you, you pass away. It was a it was a God's honest accident that I didn't see the wet floor sign, uh, and uh, it was a tragedy. Uh, now, second scenario, I find out that the Words and Numbers podcast, uh, your excellent show with Anthony Davies, has more subscribers than mine. So I beam it to your house, take a knife, and then I stab you to death. In both cases, I've done the same exact thing. The only thing that is different is what is in my head and current justification. Right. Uh, it, should I be charged differently and held to a different standard based on what my intentions are? You know, I, I'm a reasonable human being. I'm probably going to answer yes to this, right? Even though I will stipulate that the act is what's most important, right? So you stabbing me is the most important element of this story. So then we have to ask the, the next question. What can we take into account when we decide how to punish you? And it, it's mens rea, right? In the mind of, all right, fair enough. In your mind, you have two completely different things happening, right? One is clearly what we would call murder, and the other is clearly what we would call manslaughter. Um, and on the manslaughter side of things, are you even on the hook for it, right? Is there anything that we're going to blame you for? I guess we can blame you for walking down the street next to me with a knife out. And, 
And we could say things like, well, what did you think would happen? And you would respond, well, I wasn't thinking that I could murder James in the blink of an eye. And anybody, I think, would look at that scenario and say, well, that's just dumb luck. It's real stupid. Why'd you have the knife out? These sorts of things. But clearly, you're not a murderer. Not like you are if you kill me to get my audience or some such thing, right? Um, and, and this is always the kind of place where, where we find ourselves, right? People want to talk about murder versus manslaughter all the time. And I think it's, it's right to, to do so. And here's where it gets really, really touchy. If we decide, as I just said, we should, right, looking at what's going on in your mind and then applying it to what just happened, that sounds perfectly reasonable in this circumstance. What about next when people start saying, yeah, that's exactly what we should do with hate crimes and speech we don't like? Now, all of a sudden, that doesn't seem like a great idea at all, right? And, and here's where you're stuck. And you're always going to be stuck, right? This is nothing new. People think you can talk your way out of these problems. You can't. If you could, we wouldn't have all these problems. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be evergreen, right? We look at this problem exactly the same way I did 30 years ago as an undergrad. All right. That probably tells me that with all the smart people who've been working on this for 30 years, and if you really want to take a look, it's really 2,000 years, all the way back to Socrates. Um, and we haven't come to a very easy conclusion yet in 2000 years, probably not going to have one. Exactly. And, and and that's that's the humility that's important to have. Every country would just have all the same laws because we'd know what they're sure. well, we know what every law should be. And you wouldn't even need judges, really, because everyone sees uh, things exactly the same. Um, one of the very cool, fashionable things to do is say that someone who you're arguing with is brainwashed or in a cult. How are you able to determine, if you want to do a role play with me, uh, how are you able to determine if someone is brainwashed or simply misled, or maybe you're even wrong? Well, the, the possibility that I'm wrong always exists, right? It, that's always a possible answer. Um, I think as I get older, that's less plausible, right? Because you reevaluate things every day. And if I have 20 more years than you of reevaluation, I'm going to I'm going to put the check mark next to my name. And then, you know, you will be in my position 20, 30 years from now, and you'll be saying much the same thing to somebody who asks a question like you just asked. And I think that's fair. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it explains too terribly much, but I think it's fair. OK, so now how would I determine whether you're a knucklehead in some way that I haven't been able to figure out? Right? I don't know what that means. Maybe you're a Scientologist or some such thing. Right. Um, and now I, I don't know. Right? I, it seems to me to be the kind of thing that's so idiosyncratic that it varies person to person. Um, I, I'm of a mind that we approach truth politically through the dialectic, the, the, the arguing of a point back and forth. And you and I could probably argue a bunch of things. And if we were both sufficiently humble, we could walk away from that, each of us thinking that we've learned something yeah. and that something something you said is going to be more right than something I said. And I'm going to have to adjust my worldview according to this new, new wrinkle. Um, and I guess the determination that I'll, I'll give is how many things do you do that cause me to say, huh, I'm going to have to think about that. 
because the more things that hit that category, the less likely you are to be in a cult. However, we care to define cult at this moment, right? It could be some kind of um, supernatural cult. It, it could be um, more like a statist cult, which I think is fair enough the way that people treat these sorts of things. But ultimately, it's going to be in a dialectic, you and me, and, and that's going to be something that, that we each realize upon the culmination of our discussion, how well we did, how well the other side did, and the adjustment accordingly is the tricky bit, because I've seen people lose arguments wholesale. I mean, they just get destroyed, and they walk away thinking, well, that went well. <laughs> I've seen the same we've, thing, yeah. We've all seen this before, and for, for God's sake, man, come on. Um, so a little bit of, of self-awareness is actually required, and I, I hold no great hope that people are going to have that little bit of self-awareness. Um, most of them don't. And that's sad, but what can you do? And this is why I think we muddle through instead of having very clear objectives to the things we want to accomplish. We muddle through. Uh, why? Because the clearer your objectives get, the less likely people are to agree to them. So we do everything from 35,000 feet and 80% of our efforts are completely wasted uh, to get that last 20 as best we can, right? And were I king, I would dissolve, I would design things differently. But were I king, I would wonder why anybody was allowed to be king. Right? The, yeah. the, the classical liberal perspective on such a thing. Um, and there it is. So I, hell if I know. All right, hell if I know. Let's go through your five favorite books that uh, you had told me were uh, y your favorites. If you could give yeah, me a, uh, one to a two-minute lesson on a really valuable thing you extracted from uh, the, from this book, I would appreciate it. Book number one, The Republic by Plato. Yeah, and anybody who deals in philosophy at all is going to have this one way up top, right? This is... This is a number one kind of book, right? And, and why is that? It, it covers so much ground about so many different things that I could probably spend the next 30 years reading only that book to get to the heart of it. I spent a lot of time in that book. Um, to this day, Plato and somebody we're going to get to in a little bit, there are only two philosophers I read one for fun, right? When I want to just lay back and read something. And Plato's Republic is that book. And why is it so so important? Because it, it seeks to answer the political question, right? How how should we behave towards one another? If we're going to start a city, what should it look like? How should people be divided? Right? And these sorts of big picture questions. And, and I'm I'm not here to tell you that Plato gives us the correct answers here. And then clearly he doesn't, but it's, he gives us, I think, patently incorrect answers, right? Because at the end of the book, you realize that, okay, we have to, and Plato and Socrates says as much during the, the conversation, we have to do away with the family. Well, all right, hold the phone. How, how many Athenians, how many ancient Greeks are going to say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. You can't, you can't do it, right? Because no woman gives up her, her just-born child because of some societal need, right? You can't break the mother-child bond all that easily. So when you look at what happens in the Republic, you, you are looking at a, a large bit of sat satire. 
uh, and figuring out what what's satire and what's the real lesson here. That's the tricky bit. And as you get more mature, as you read the book more and more, the answers to those questions shift a, a quite a lot. Um, and that's what makes it, I think, so wonderful. But now, of course, we'll talk about another another platonic work that that doesn't yield out the same kind of answers. Yeah, book number two, The Laws. Yeah, this one's the other giant book that that Plato wrote, right? So the Republic and the Laws. And The Laws he wrote at the end of his life by almost everyone's estimation. Um, we don't have a, a strict timeline of the works that he, he, wrote, he wrote. So people try to situate them relative to one another, given the text and what have you. And uh, the, the Laws comes much, much later. And it doesn't have any of those... I would call pie-in-the-sky arguments that you get in the Republic. No, the, the laws exists here where you and I exist, in the messy real world. And in that book, it, you get a completely different kind of society that emerges, right? And I don't want to use that word the way I just did, right? Because society and, and a polity are not the same thing, right? We could be in a society and not have a government. We cannot be in a government and not have a society. So it gets a little gray around around the margins here. But the laws, I think, make the case for um, institutional government. And that's interesting, right? That somebody that somebody 2,000 years ago would have arrived at the answer, more or less, that Enlightenment figures all seem to arrive at. It was really before his time in almost every way. So there it is. But I think the next book will get us into institutional government only too deeply if i'm remembering my list well yeah so uh you, you said the federalist is that the name of a book or were you referencing the federalist papers yeah the, the Fed, well people call them the federalist papers but they there's not really a good reason for that they were called okay. the federalist by okay. by the guys who who wrote them and early uh, early versions of the book form that emerged from these newspaper articles in in 1787 um 88 all just referred to it as the Federalist. And uh, it's actually, for, for my money, probably the finest in-depth defense of Republican government that I've ever seen. And, and oddly enough, who else shared that exact point of view? Thomas Jefferson, who had nothing to do with it, right? And who was, without question, an enemy of the people who were writing it at the time. Um, so political enemies during this period of our history, um, a lot more high-minded than political enemies now, mm -hmm. right? You can have Jefferson on one side and Madison on the other disagreeing about something very meaningful, and each of them offering gorgeous arguments to, to persuade everybody out there in, in the middle. That they never actually looked at each other as subhumans, right? The way that we do now. A matter of fact, if you read the Federalist very carefully, and I mean word by word, you find that they never actually address anyone disrespectfully. Maybe the king, right? The things like this, uh, although George III doesn't really come up here. Um, Jefferson does. And they refer to him obliquely. They won't even say his name before they criticize him. Why? Because, now well, he's a respectable person. He wrote the Declaration of Independence, for God's sake. You want to criticize him now? You best tread lightly. And they did. They tread very lightly. 
And that's fascinating that people could have been in that position over the most important political things, as opposed to now when we're so much worse and the things that were exercised about are so much lower. Yeah. Right. I mean, we don't have high minded debates about things anymore and we haven't for a very long time. That's all they had once upon a time. And those arguments are beautiful. And you want to read some anti-federalist writings as well. Understanding that the Federalist, the book of 85 essays from Hamilton, Madison and John Jay, that's propaganda, right? It's the best propaganda I've ever seen, but it only gives one side of the argument for why we should uh, adopt the new constitution. So definitionally, it's not complete. It's not what you want to have, you know, a full view of things, but it's beautiful and you can't have a full view of things until you understand this first. So there's why I think I would recommend it. Jefferson was right when he referred to the Federalist as the best exposition of Republican principles that he had ever seen. It's wow. that good. And even an opponent of that sort of thing could lean back and say, well, there's nothing better than that. And when Jefferson says this sort of thing, I take special notice because he didn't waste a lot of words. Major lessons from the genealogy of morals. Hmm. Yeah, one of these things is not like the others. Come to find out, this is the one that's not like the others. Um, everything you and I have talked about today presupposes, and I've been pushing this on you, right? Presupposes some understanding of a moral good, that we can arrive at some understanding of this idea of the good, and we can pattern human life underneath that accordingly right well here comes friedrich nietzsche to tell you no you can't he can't do that and and he does it most explicitly here in the genealogy of morals now um beyond good and evil was written prior to this uh, and what he found was that his audience for beyond good and evil he thought they were a little confused because maybe he went too fast too far so later in time, I usually advise people to read the works of great philosophers in temporal order, right? So if he wrote this one first, you read this one first. But here, this is the only time I decidedly break in the other direction, um, because the genealogy of morals was a, a more simplistic, and more simplistic doesn't equal simplistic by Nietzschean standards, but it was a more simplistic take on where this idea of the good even comes from. What makes you think that you even have an idea what's objectively good or true? And Nietzsche, I mean, notice he's working in a genealogical form. That, that word matters um, because exactly as you would read that, you know, that biblical series, right? This one begat, this one begat, this one begat, this one. So too, you'll get Nietzsche saying that about the ways that we interpret moral questions. And if it's just a series of begats, what's that going to involve? Well, that's going to involve power. Those postmodernists picked something up from Nietzsche, and here it is. It's always going to be about power. Is it ever going to be about what's right? Well, maybe accidentally, but probably not, not if it's really about power. And he talks about the transvaluation of all values, which is fascinating, right? Because he wants to make the case that human beings were once noble creatures who imposed their will on each other and the world. 
And somewhere along the way, we got hoodwinked and, uh, and we, we decided that what's really important is this abstract character, God, and, and that all of a sudden an all powerful God, and these are Nietzsche's words, don't send me hate mail. I don't want to hear it. Um, but Nietzsche says, well, imagine the spectacle of this all powerful God being nailed to a cross. What the hell? And he said at that moment, at that moment, we had the transvaluation of all values, where it became not only fashionable, but almost necessary that the weak become the strong and that the strong become prisoners. <laughs> and isn't that isn't that fascinating? He's probably got a point here. It's probably a, a thing that we never really think about all that much. Tell me about your religion, right? whatever it happens to be. Because I'm here to tell you, you can say everything to a person in your religion, and he will not find it objectionable in any way. You can say the exact same things to me, and I'll zero in on the problems immediately. right? Because every religion has an internal logic. right? It all makes sense once you buy into the system. But buying into the system has no logic. How do you get there? Almost always by birth. Almost always. If it's not by birth, what is it? Oh, it's that you hated the thing you got from birth and latched onto something else that one of your friends had. Mm. And we all know this. We've all seen this a thousand times. And Nietzsche says, you've probably seen it so often that you're not thinking about it. And that, that was his gift, right? He could take things that we all thought were probably settled issues and say, yeah, about that. Here you go. And, and he, he unleashes devastating arguments. They're not difficult. They're, they're devastating. And, if that's right, if my, if my take on him is correct, and believe me, it is, he offers things that everybody really should be looking into. Will they? No, they will not. Um, but, but he offers the arguments that I have nothing but trouble with, given that I start, as we started here today, with this idea that there is some sort of metaphysical good out there that we all appeal to in the actions of our day-to-day -day lives, right? Everything I do is designed to make things better, not worse, right? I, now, I may be mistaken about what makes things better, but that's going to be my, my goal, my aim. Every step I take is going to be to make things better. Okay, what if Nietzsche's right about all this stuff? Now we all have a problem, a big problem, right? And so, yeah, looking back on it, I probably should have put that book closer to first but eh, fourth seems pretty good to me too fifth is really good so let's get to that one so finally a confederacy of dunces biggest takeaways from that book um well all right so first the terrible story i don't know if you know the terrible story you might this was written by a guy was it john kennedy tool or o'toole i can i can never remember i think it's tool um he wrote this book and it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's just unbelievably good how, how wonderful it is. It was the only book that ever had me laughing so hard I thought I was going to wet myself. Right? It's that kind of funny. Um, and don't you know, he wrote the book, couldn't get it published to save his life. Um, matter of fact, that, that formulation is probably dead on correct. Because he went out and he hung himself and died. Because he, yeah. And his mother... And, and it's odd, right, because the character in the book of the mother, I'm pretty sure, was his mother anyway. Um, his mother wouldn't let it go. 
and she she found a professor down in New Orleans, and he agreed to take a look at it just to get rid of her, right? This kind of thing, crazy woman showing up with pages that you know a foot tall of pages. The book is long, so printing it out would be a disaster. Um, and the guy started reading. He said, and within minutes he knew he would read to the very end. And by the time he got to the end, he knew for a fact he would do anything he could to get this thing published. And, and don't you know, they got it published and it won a Pulitzer. But that poor bastard had already hung himself, right? I mean, how tragic can it be? This is just terrible. And yet he gave us this gift of a book. It's, it's an absolute gift. Um, and the lessons you take away from it are, are, you know, I guess there are many, but the, the first is that people can be profoundly ridiculous. And maybe that's predominantly true. That, and I think that might be true, actually. I know a lot of very well-educated, very smart people, and they're all a pack of weirdos, right? <laughs> and I'm sure that they put me in that category, too. All right, well, maybe that's something we should all think about a little more than we do. Um Ignatius, the main character in the book, acts according to his self-interest constantly, except he's wrong about it almost every time, right? Um, and look, you and I, we will say things like, and, and here we follow Austrian economists, right, and uh, Hayek and, and all of these, these people who have looked into this, and then Madison and the Federalist, and, and we're going to say something like, well, sure, you follow your own self-interest. Who could know it better than you? It's your self-interest. And then we screw it all up anyway. We find out 10 years down the road that this wasn't in my self-interest at all. Turns out I was just an idiot when I made this decision. And, and so to Ignatius in this colossal book, every decision he makes is a disaster, right? And it, it's just hilarious because we've all been there, right? His mother rides him hard to go get a job every day. He doesn't want a job. And I ask myself, well, who does? I don't. I don't want a job. If I had my way, I would just get paid for doing nothing, um, which tells you something about whether this UBI business is ever going to work out. It won't. Uh, why? Because none of us want to work. We have to be incentivized to do it. Pay is the incentive to work. Good pay is the incentive to do lots of work. Excellent pay is the incentive to learn about doing work nobody else can do. Right? Ignatius, he was just pushing. He, my favorite of his jobs was he was a hot dog vendor in New Orleans, right? He's pushing this cart around. And it captures, the book captures New Orleans, I think, beautifully. It happens during a period that I didn't know New Orleans, probably late 60s, early 70s, if my, maybe 80s. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a time in New Orleans that I, I didn't know this the place, but I feel like I kind of do after I read the book. So really the book is brain candy in a lot of ways. It's the kind of thing that if you want, you if you want your, your brain just bathed in endorphins, go ahead and read this book. It's, it's going to really make you happy. Um, try not to remember how the author killed himself and robbed himself of probably a fantastic legacy. We only get the one book and then one other short thing, like a novella that he wrote when he was a, a teenager. Um, so obviously not that great. But, but this second one, good Lord, it's just perfect. Just perfect. Excellent. Well, James Harrigan, thank you so much for your time. And thank you to everyone else for watching uh, Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Uh, James, where's the best place to find your collection of work? 
Well, that's an interesting question. We're going to have to start collating these things soon. Um, years of op-ed writing every day has yielded out hundreds of, of op-eds that I have no idea how to even find them myself anymore. Um, Twitter is probably best to keep an eye on what I'm doing day to day. I, I tend to, to throw announcements up there when I've got them. So I'm at James R. Harrigan. Uh, nice and easy. Keith, you can put it in the notes, I guess. Um, we also have a Facebook group for the podcast, Words and Numbers, and the group is called uh, Backstage. So if you can find the Backstage group on Facebook, you can have direct access to me and, and to Anthony as well. We're almost always checking in there every day. So these are these are the ways and, uh, until we collect everything into bound volumes. I guess this is going to have to do. And I, let, let me push one more thing, if you would. Yeah. I have started a video series on a YouTube channel that I just started uh, three weeks ago. So go find that because it, it's going to, I think, prove to be amusing, if nothing else. It's smoking stories. So I like tobacco in all of its forms. And I'll be talking about that, probably smoking a pipe in almost every episode. But then the stories come, and they're unrelated to the smoking, mostly. Um, so to the extent that I can weave these two things together, I'll be successful. And to the extent that I can't, well, you'll make fun of me. Yes, I uh, I really enjoyed it. I especially like the uh, ship of uh, Theseus one. So if you're interested, there's a, a few ones to watch. That is definitely one I recommend. James, thank you so Thanks. much for your time. Thank you, Keith. It's good to see you again, and I hope to see you again real soon.